0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: Okay, guys, 2021 is now underway. While you guys are sitting around at home this winter thinking of things to do. Why not join a great group of people doing great things for the hunting community? I'm talking about BC's interior chapter of SEI. You guys can check them out on our webpage. We have a link that connects you to them. While you guys are there, be sure to check out all the new gear we have out pick yourself up a new tee hat or hoodie we even have some women's gear up there now so be sure to check that out on this episode i'm joined by ben barikoff ben is the owner of canadian wildlife capture this is an episode i think you guys are really gonna like
2: Good morning,
1: Kevin. Uh, welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Good morning. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so, Ben, uh, maybe before we get into uh, to what you're doing now, maybe you can tell us a bit about your your background, uh, you know, that kind of thing, uh, who you are and, and uh, where you grew up. Sure, yeah. Uh,
2: my background, born and raised, Cranbrook, East Kootenai kid. Grew up hunting, fishing
1: with my dad
2: was uh, and my mom as well. We spent our childhood outside every minute that we could. I got one sister, she's a couple years older than me, and uh, we grew up camping pretty much all summer long, every weekend, uh, spending every time that we could outside. Uh, you know, we lived in town, we didn't have a farm or anything, or horses, we uh, we sort of spent, yeah, like I say, everything outside, and I never really got into um, serious hunting, I guess you'd call it, until I, I sort of moved out of my house, like, my parents would always take us out hunting um, pretty much for, you know, just road hunting. My dad and I would always shoot a bunch of grouse and we would shoot some small white tails and maybe a big one if we got real lucky. And uh, we always put in for mule deer, doe tags and go where we could see the most deer. It was all about filling the freezer and that's all we ate for red meat was, was wild game and stuff. And as I grew up, I got, you know, more and more interested into maybe more backcountry adventure style hunting and different species. And when I got to 18 and and had that freedom of a a vehicle and hunting uh, away from my parents, uh, a good friend of mine, Brad Watson, introduced me to elk hunting. And I guess that kind of changed my life. And he took me out one day and he said, oh, I've been seeing some elk cross the highway on my way to work every morning. Let's go out there and see if we can find one. You know, we always bought an elk tag when I was a young kid, but we never, I think I got a couple of LEHs for cow elk. We harvested those. But aside from that, never really got into um, serious elk hunting. And so Brian took me out and we, we we ended up calling in this just a ginormous seven point bull in a short period of time we didn't harvest a bullet we just saw a just coming over this little ridge but it was right there 20 yards and that kind of that that changed changed my uh my life i think right there i was ad- instantly addicted to elk hunting and that interactive type of uh hunting with yeah. elk
1: yeah man elk uh, and they definitely have that uh, that effect on people that's for sure i remember my first elk oh. hunt my very first elk hunt, uh not the first day, but uh, our first trip out elk hunt, and I went with my cousin and uh and I got an elk uh which is pretty amazing, and then it took me a few years after that to get another one but yeah, but yeah, that first interaction with them is something, something else that's for sure,
2: yeah, I agree, so interactive yeah uh they're a majestic animal in their own right too uh the places they live right they're very adaptable they can live at the top of the mountains they can live in the, your backyard farmer's field pretty cool animal. I love elk always have a passion for elk and that's kind of what set uh set me on different styles of hunting I think it was right there I was about 18 years old I guess and been been into hunting and fishing though my whole life and uh Cranbrook was a great place to grow up doing that stuff that's for sure
1: yeah yeah no uh that's a nice area down there so uh you obviously you still hunt you get out to uh, do any hunting this year? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Probably this year, 2020, was maybe the highlight of my hunting adventures. I wasn't in, yeah, growing up, you know, always hunting elk. We I was a passionate elk hunter, had some good friends in Cranbrook there, lived there until oh, maybe 14 years ago, I guess, and still went back every year. But I never really got introduced to sheep hunting until uh, maybe more recent years, maybe six or seven years ago. I was just because I was always chasing elk, I think. And I, some of my friends there in Cranbrook, they went off sheep hunting, doll sheep up uh, and other places, and stones, of course, and bighorns and the coonies. And I just never really got into it and, and until recent years. And a really good friend of mine, and I had been talking about going on a stone sheep hunt, and so this year, well, we we start we started the planning a couple, year and a half ago, I guess, and we talked about where we should go, and, and, and through doing uh, different wildlife capture stuff, like, you, you get to, like, know where more animals are, or where it might be a good spot, or that you talk to more people, or you talk to outfitters and stuff, and so came up with this wild idea to hike into some godforsaken valley after getting dropped off by a float plane and i didn't even know if we could get in there but it's an area that's surrounded by quality sheep some of the outfitters uh, in the surrounding area at least have been harvesting big rams. so we just went in for an adventure we just wanted to hike our butts off and see some country and you know one of us really care if we actually shoot anything well we uh, booked a plane through a friend and and uh, started hitting the gym every single day <laughs> for a year. And we went up there for for the opener, and we got dropped off in the plane, I think, on the twentieth of July. It took us four days to kind of get into where we wanted to. Of course, we were hunting a little bit on the way in, but it was just a bunch of just slogging. And uh, like I say, I I'd, I'd never heard of people. Going into this place or anything, there's there's no trails or horse trails or nothing. It took us yeah about four days to get in there. of uh, hard going, uh, both of us pretty good shape. Yeah. And uh, we got in there. We saw some sheep for sure. We saw a bunch of rams, but nothing nothing big at all. And. Um, we saw a couple of maybe legal rams, but that's not what we were looking for. We we're just like I say, we're in there for the adventure and just you know going out there for what sheep hunting's all about. Just being out in that country and stuff. And we kept pushing further and further. We came up with an idea that maybe we'd come out a different way that we went in, but we were a little bit leery about that because we uh, it was it was it was pretty pretty intensive hike so far. On day eight, we were just moving camps and my buddy there he said oh there's a there's a caribou running down that ridge up ahead uh-huh. and I put up my binoculars I said oh it's a sheep I said it's a ram actually there's two rams so yeah I was pulling out the spotter we just had brought one spotter we went in as light as we could just because we knew it was going to be a, a grunt so we uh he pulled out the spotter by then this ram had come right skyline 550 yards right skyline and I instantly knew like <laughs> there was no question that this is a this is a legal ram, plus yeah, that's a nice. whole bunch. And so I was like, man, that that's a ram right there. Like if we're this is this is the biggest ram I've ever seen. And by then, my buddy's got the spotter out, and he's like, he he says same thing. His jaws drop. He's like, this is the biggest <laughs> ram I've ever seen in my life. And this is a sheep guy. He's a sheep biologist. He's done his masters in sheep, stone sheep, in and uh, he he guides for Arctic Red in his spare time and. He says, that's the biggest sheep I've seen. I was like, yeah, I know, buddy. We'll never see this again. So it's 550 yards. The two rams, they drop into this gully. We're not sure. They disappear. We're not sure if they're going to come out low or high. My buddy thinks high. I think low. We're like, well, let's just kind of close the distance a little bit, and we'll keep watching where they come out. And it's blowing like 30, 40 kilometers. Now hour. just cranking winds. Blue sky. We're just cranking winds, and we kind of angle it up because they might come out on this trail, we think up, oh, maybe, and I'm still thinking down. Well, they come out down below, so they get set up on a rock, range it 330 yards, and they're on the move. Like, they're moving valleys. I don't know if there was other hunters in the area. We didn't see anybody, but uh, I line up and 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 think, Ben, this is like, this is it, this is all, this is Everything's on the line here. The ram stop. My buddy says, well, aim like two feet in front of it, because it's blowing that hard. And I was like, "Oh man, I don't know two feet like this. Three hundred yards of two yeah. feet—that seems like insane." <laughs> so I, I kind of cut the cut the difference, and I aim about a uh, you know twelve inches in front of his body, sort of upwind, and uh, I was just about to pull the trigger because he stopped for a second, and there's three blades of grass just in front of the barrel. I thought, "Don't mess this up and <laughs> take it, You know, it's all it's all or nothing here, and so I bust the three blades of grass off line up again, and he started moving a little bit again and stopped again sort of broadside. And I just sort of eased that trigger as, and let it surprise me. And and if I didn't make it, just a solid shot. And it was one shot, and that was it. So that was that – was, wow. I mean, I'll never I'll, – I'll probably never see a Ram of that size. It ended up scoring uh, – Ross Mandis scored it in Victoria. Uh, Boone and Crockett, final score was 175 and 28s. Oh, wow, just, just a, a, just tank. a gigantic stuff. Yeah, huge. Yeah, oh. I'd be lucky if I ever see a seer ram like that again in my life. I, uh, yeah, man, I that's, feel so so lucky. Yeah. That's
1: that's gonna be tough to top. What's uh, what do you got planned for twenty twenty one? Yeah,
2: well, I just <laughs> sent off my uh, my doll sheet draw tag for the the Catancini, So we'll see. Um, I got a bighorn uh, about five years ago, and so I got. I got my two more for
1: four, <laughs> Yeah. so I'm
2: planning to win a, a desert sheep hunt because I'll never be able to afford it. So I plan on winning one. So I keep yeah. buying tickets.
1: <laughs> yeah, man, I'm always putting uh, up those tickets too. Yeah, one day. Yeah, somebody's gonna win it, right? Yeah, and it all exactly. goes for yeah. a good cause. Yeah, yeah, it all goes no, it, for a good it, cause. It definitely does. It definitely does. So, yeah, man, that's quite an yeah. adventure, and uh, and you live quite an adventure day to day. You're a helicopter pilot. Yep,
2: I started flying helicopters in 2002,
1: and I. Prior to that, I
2: was uh, working in the bush. I did some falling bucking, running a cat skin logs and stuff before that. uh, Somehow I got in my mind that I wanted to get out of forestry and get into flying helicopters because that seemed like sort of the ultimate machine to run. I like sort of operating machines. And so I went and, well, I had to borrow as much as I could from the bank and get a student loan for as much as I could. I sold my truck and saved another uh, bit of money to get my license which was it took quite a while there to save enough money but uh 2002 went and got my commercial license and my my dad was always bugging me he says well what happens when it doesn't work out what happens if you can't get it done I said, dad i got everything into this it's, like, it's got to work out and uh, so i took my my license in 2002 went on a bit of a road trip trying to find a job and uh helicopter pilots a tough field to break into it's there's lots of work for experienced pilots but it's one of those things that if you never get the opportunity how do you ever get the experience and so it's just getting the foot in the door finding that right opportunity and then not letting that opportunity slip away i lucked out
1: yeah i got a couple friends that uh they're they're established uh helicopter pilots now but i i remember when they were first getting into it that was uh One of their biggest struggles was, was, you know, getting flight time and getting a job exactly like you said. How do you get flight hours if no one's going to give you the chance? So, yeah, it's
2: tough. Yeah, tough go. I I ended up coming back to Cranbrook after I went on a bit of a road trip there, dropping off resumes, and there was a 212 parked at the local operator, Bighorn Helicopters, in in Cranbrook, Uh, and it it wasn't a local helicopter that i had seen before. So I went down there, and the guys were just setting up to wash the helicopter was at the end of the day and man i just picked up that wash broom and i just started washing that helicopter and and uh just introduced myself you know i said hey i just finished my commercial license just like five five days ago and they said really they said oh we're from powell river uh we're here doing some heli logging and i said oh i i just stopped in powell river two months ago when i was visiting my uncle at easter and i stopped in at your guys's hangar and i introduced myself to the boss and they said we'll call the boss up because we need a, we need a co-pilot tomorrow so i called the the owner at the time up and i said you remember me i stopped in there 2 months ago and and i uh, just said hi and you said you'll never hire low time pilots <laughs> so you remember me he says yeah i do remember you. And he, and he says yeah we need a co-pilot tomorrow hop in
1: oh no so that's way right how's that for timing yeah just the right place
2: right time
1: uh you
2: know talking to as many people as
1: you can and
2: that was that was my opportunity so i started doing a co-pilot in a, in a heli logging machine, and it was awful. It was, uh, you know, I was puking my guts out, like, pretty much every day. Just It's just a, it's like being on a roller coaster for hours, and it, uh, yeah, it was never really enjoyable. I learned a lot of stuff, that's for sure, but I just never gave up. You know, I was making next to no money at all, working 30 days a month and, like, 14 hours a day, I just never gave up. I said, this is my end. Like I can't let it slip away. It'll turn into something. So I did that
1: for about a year. Um, it was, it was good. Like it wasn't all bad for sure,
2: but it it was my foot in the door. Yeah. It was my foot in the door for sure.
1: So those hours as a co-pilot, do they help you accumulate flight time?
2: Uh, not exactly. Can't log them as piloting command time, but the stuff that you learn, I got to fly quite a bit. I fly the crew back and forth to the job site each day. And excuse me, got into dropping the guys off on the helipads, like the, the riggers, the ground crew. And it was ex- it was experience and knowledge that that goes a long ways, I would say. Like a- anybody can fly a helicopter. It's no different than fly or driving a car. Like if you can keep a car between the yellow line and the white line on the road, well, you can fly a helicopter. There's no there's not it's not rocket science by any means. It's uh, to be a successful pilot you need good judgment and you just need somebody to to teach you it's just like riding a bike when you're a kid it seems impossible at first but uh when, once you stop having to think about what the controls do then relatively easy i would say but the mistakes or there's no forgiveness there so if you make mistakes or bad judgment um yeah you're done bad errors well you're done yeah exactly yeah. so that experience and knowledge that i learned doing that co-pilot for heli-long was huge and so when that job kind of dried up the the guys. At Ocean View Helicopters here in Powell River, they said, "Well, why don't you come out to the to the coast, and uh, we'll, we'll get you flying the Hughes 500 and, and doing stuff." So it was a, it was a, it was a slow progression. It seemed like it took took forever to really build up that first thousand hours, which is sort of your magic. You know, once you have a thousand pilot in command hours in a helicopter, you can start to do most jobs. You got that experience, knowledge, uh, confidence to go out and do. Most jobs. I Maybe not most jobs, but a bunch of jobs anyway. It took probably like four years, I guess, to get there.
1: Yeah, well, the stuff you're involved with now, you know, that's no easy feat. It's You, uh, you started the Canadian Wildlife Rescue or the Canadian Wildlife Capture. Can you tell me a little bit yep. about that?
2: Yep. So Canadian Wildlife Capture is a small business that I started in 2012. And it was maybe not by accident, but I think wildlife capture was something I was always intrigued about, something I was always interested in, and something that I wanted to pursue, I guess, in some ways. But I never, when I started flying, it was never my goal. It was never my objective. I just focused on, you know, just, just flying, just doing whatever kind of jobs came up in probably 2010 or somewhere around there. I met a guy through my wife and his wife, and we had kids at the same time, so they had sort of a baby group. Um, yeah, so I met met this guy, Andrew Walker, which is the same friend that I went on the she- stone sheep hunt with oh, yeah. good buddies. Yeah. And he, you probably know him because he's a senior wildlife biologist there in Penticton Region 8.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: He's, uh, he's, he's like my best bud. He's a oh, nice. uh, great guy. Yeah. So it was him that uh, he was in Powell River here, living here with his family, uh, doing some He's working for an underwater logging company. And that, so we met through our wives, and he said, you know, oh, you, you know, you're a helicopter pilot, you fly the Hughes 500, you're into hunting, you're into wildlife. He's like, How are you not doing wildlife capture? And I said, Yeah, I, don't, I sort of always wanted to do that, but I know, don't really know how to get into that. Same thing as when you're flying or starting out flying. It's one of those jobs you need the experience, but if you can't get that initial foot in the door, it's impossible field to break into. There's a, It's a specialized field for sure. There's yeah. a lot of little tricks and stuff and techniques and equipment and a of stuff going on pretty fast.
1: So is there training involved in getting to something like this? Or is it you just grip and rip it and, and dive right in?
2: I've trained a couple of pilots up since starting Canadian Wildlife Capture. And, yeah, we definitely do a, a bunch of training. And that's how I've gotten other pilots going is by um acting like i'll be the net gunner and i'll get somebody else to fly and i can walk them through it uh, and then quite often i'll get other new pilots to do the same they'll come out net gunning or mugging and they'll see how it's done you know just because there's a lot if you just go out just to try and do it there's a lot of unknowns just a lot yeah. of unknowns about everything. But if you see it done a couple of times, you're like, okay, this is how it goes. And of course, every species, every terrain, every there's all these different things that are learned, but along the way. But if if you just get somebody to show you the, the first little bit, it, that that takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. Right. So when the when I first started canal life capture, I I'd never even caught an animal to tell you the truth. I just knew that's what I wanted to do, and there's nobody really that's going to walk you through it. And I knew I wanted to, I was going to go down a path. I was going to put down a lot of effort into it. And I didn't want to just do it through a helicopter company, you know, work for a, a helicopter company. And, do it. I wanted to put a lot of effort into it, sort of make my own and see. And then I could be flexible with maybe who I hire and, and, and make those calls as I saw fit. So that's how I ended up starting it. Yeah.
1: Man, I love that ambitious goal-oriented mindset. You just jump right in get your hands dirty and figure it out. So, so what was your yep, first yep. Uh, animal capture? Like the very first, what kind one, of animal was uh, it?
2: Bighorn sheep, uh, California bighorn sheep. And that was close to your neck of the woods, maybe down in the actionola. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. we were working, we were catching sheep for the, um, the testing. So that was probably in 2012. Well, must've been 2012 when we started working on the project. That was, that was the first one that I caught. And, um, There were so many things well, like I say, that, you know, I was new to it. I knew I'd watch videos on YouTube, which limited they are. But, you know, trying to get a feel like how this happens. Well, every single animal, every single situation is a little bit different. So the learning curve was pretty steep, but sheep are pretty, especially those uh, California bighorns, pretty easy terrain, you know, fairly wide open. Sheep love open areas. So they're fairly, uh, there's quite a bit of room to work with. So you can kind of set yourself up, make a nice approach. There's usually a hill there involved, so you can get the animals going fairly slow. Sheep don't run that fast anyways too so uh it was it was good at animals to to sort of cut my teeth on, I guess you could say,
1: yeah, man, that's gotta be a pretty cool experience for the first time. So when you capture these animals, what's the process of capturing them you You mentioned net gunner and mugger. Walk me through that a bit.
2: A capture crew typically involves two people or three people. So you'll have the pilot, the net gunner, and then sometimes you'll have a mugger. So the mugger would ride in the front seat of the Hughes 500 beside the pilot. The net gunner, uh, the way that we do it is uh, the net gunner is seated in the back seat behind the pilot. So that the pilot and the net gunner are looking uh, at the same, in the same direction uh can see the, the animals in the same direction of travel. The doors are off of the helicopter. Whatever it is, wolves, caribou, sheep, deer, goat, elk, whatever, you'd be out there, find the animals that you want to, whether you're doing uh, net, netting bulls or cows or ewes or lambs or fawns or whatever. Find them. Find them in an area that you would have an opening big enough to capture them in. So you need some sort of area free of vegetation or timber so that you could get down fairly low and position yourself. Typically, I'm going to say that most of our shots from the helicopter would be five yards to the animal. The net gun will probably fire up to 20 yards from an elevated platform, but we want to be as close as possibly can. Not so close that, the, that the, when you fire the gun, the net wouldn't have time to open, but so usually about five yards. That'd be ideal. If you, the closer you can get, the better shot you're going to have. The better the animal is going to get wrapped up in that net. Oh, that's and close. Get, yeah, it's super close. So, the net gun is uh, the ones we're using now are our break action pistol uh, with, a, with a single 308 blank cartridge. So, it's just a 308 brass that's loaded with pretty much full of shotgun powder, crimped on the end, uh, loaded into that pistol. The pistol is attached to a net basket and the basket has four barrels on it in each one of those four barrels is a steel weight and then each weight is connected to a corner of the net the nets that we use are usually a 12 foot by 12 foot wire net uh, yeah. but sometimes we'll use 15 foot nets for caribou elk oh, yeah, those some of the bigger guys. animals we we'll use a little yeah the bigger nets come out a little bit slower especially when they get wet so we like to use the little bit smaller nets for but Moose, of course, you need a bigger net for a
1: bigger animal. Yeah, no kidding. You guys, uh, um, what happens if you miss? Does that uh, ever happen? Oh, yeah. You just reload uh, and go, or, keep going? Or,
2: or, yeah, so we always have two guns ready to go, two net guns ready to go um, that are in a rack in the, in the helicopter. So the, the net gunner would have one gun in his hand as you pull up the animal. Ideally, you fire the net gun, one net, one animal, you're good to go. But if it misses <laughs> or sometimes the animal will roll and roll right right out of the net. As soon as it tumbles once, and then it'll come out the other side of the net. That can happen. Or sometimes you, you miss, or you only get a corner of the animal, or the animal gets hooked on a tree, maybe, the net, and the animal's able to sneak under it. Oh, yeah. Or it'll hook on the net on one side, and a tree the other side, and the animal can turn around backwards and pull out of the net. Um, so we'll have two, two guns that are ready to go. If, if the first net doesn't work, the, the gunner can grab the other gun, fire the next net. It'll be ready to go. And if that fails, the the net canisters, the canisters that hold the that have the barrels and the net are detachable. It's just a hydraulic quick coupler that oh, yeah. attaches the pistol to the to the net baskets. And we'll have like four or five or six uh, baskets loaded with nets ready to go. So all they have to do is grab another canister, plug that onto the gun, grab a new blank put that in there and then you can be ready to go again
1: cool i wonder what that uh wonder what that animal's thinking when uh when that net gets dropped on them <laughs> yeah what yeah the... exactly
2: what we talk about that yeah what kind of alien is this is catching
1: me and yeah. then
2: i think lots of times you know they think that life is over for them and uh you know sometimes some animals animals are all different probably just like humans some of them fight like crazy the whole time other ones they just give up instantly and you know, you try and release them, and they just lie there, and they think, you know, life is over. Yeah, it's and over. They're all a little bit different, but yeah, sometimes you,
1: they, you, you release them, and they look back at you, and you're like, "What
2: are you thinking?" You know, that must yeah. be just such an awful experience for them.
1: Yeah. Do you guys have to? Uh, do you have to tranquilize them or anything like that? When you, no. When you're doing um, your work on them, sometimes we do do some tranquilizing from the air,
2: and then we would use a dart gun. So just it's, it's just a. Uh, They'd also shoots a, a or use a blank, a 22 caliber blank, and it shoots a dart with the darts loaded with uh, whatever kind of drugs you're using. So you use those for bears. Uh, and sometimes we've used them for sheep or moose, um, but typically we're just using net guns and, and then just physical restraint. So we'll just physically restrain them, uh, get their front to back legs in a hobble. On a hobble, um, essentially it's just like a heavy-duty dog collar two wraps around the legs uh, and then flip the animal over and do the other two legs, put a blindfold oh. on them. It's easier on the animals just to physically restrain them rather than using the drugs. The drugs are pretty hard on some of those animals and lots of times you can reverse some parts of the drugs, but not all. And, and that that animal will be um, sedated or slightly sedated for um, a few hours or a few days and they can be susceptible to predation yeah. at that time. Uh, it's quite a long, it's, it's a longer process. So typically, if we net on an animal to do basic sampling, so just your blood, hair, fecal, nasal swabs, ear swabs, and a, and a and a collar is, we're probably like five to ten minutes maybe. Whereas tranquilizing that animal is probably going to be uh, sedated for. Half an hour, I would say. Probably, it's a slower process.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking. You know, it's it's no easy feat to hold down uh, to hold down an elk or a moose, especially with those uh, those antlers swinging at you.
2: Nope, that's for sure. There's definitely a few bits, bits that you need to stay away from, and you, you get to know, like, get a little knowledgeable on how to restrain them or how you know what can keep them down on the ground and not allow them to get up. Or like, definitely stay away from the pointy bits and the feet of <laughs> the hooves that's for sure and yeah. the moose moose has got such long legs they don't move real fast but you could be 10 feet away and it seems like that hoof still gets you so give you me gotta a kick position yourself
1: and yeah
2: gotta position yourself in the right place at all times yeah for sure
1: you guys uh you or no. your crew ever get any holes poked in you or uh, no
2: sometimes you get a couple of bruises here and there just from wrestling them but uh we've had one Well, one net gunner there got bit by a wolf, not very bad, but just tripped in the net. Like it was a really small wolf, uh, maybe like 50 pounds or something like that. And usually those ones are fairly, fairly timid and submissive when you net them. But this one it was just really deep snow and he got his foot caught in the net and he just tripped backwards. And that the wolf took the opportunity to give him a little nip on the, right on the knee. Uh, luckily our, our suits that we wear have a bit of a padding in the knee, so it wasn't too bad.
1: He continued working,
2: go went to town, got some, uh, shot, but that was probably the, I think the the worst injury that I can think
1: of. Nothing major then. Yep. How about, uh, crew and equipment? You guys must use some pretty elaborate equipment for these, uh, animal captures and I imagine you're going to need a lot of hands on deck.
2: Uh, we've got three, uh, pilots, and, um, and five net gunners, and usually we're running two helicopters four months of the year.
1: So you so you own those helicopters? Just,
2: no, so I still am associated with Ocean View Helicopters, which is the same company that I started with back in two thousand two when I started my flying career. They they have five Hughes five hundreds right now, um, and they are they've always run Hughes 500s since like nineteen ninety four. They're specialists in what they do. The Hughes 500 helicopters that they have are probably the nicest ones in North America. They, they know the machines. They have lots of spare parts, really great engineers, good maintenance. And so I've, I just, I've stayed tied with them cause it, it works. It, it relieves that complication or I guess work and effort that is involved with dealing with Transport Canada with dealing with the maintenance uh and i don't think i could ever find machines that would be as nice and maintained as well as as there so the helicopters are owned by ocean view and then i'm still a pilot for ocean view canadian wildlife capture which is me i acquire the contracts through provincial governments or universities or other groups and then ocean view Provides the flight services, and then the net gunners oh, yeah. would be employees of
1: Canadian Wildlife Capture. Oh yeah, I see. So yeah, so that's how. So when you acquire these, what that's is how it how like? It works. Are they through a bid process or people just reach out? And you know, how does that work?
2: Most of them are government funded. So then it goes through a bid process, a public bid process. There's there's a few other operators in British Columbia alone that do wildlife capture. Um, but we seem to be doing the majority of it over the last five years, I would say. We probably have like some of the most experienced crew and um, they'll bid it competitively. Sometimes we'll do stuff for uh, universities. University of Saskatchewan usually has a bit of a program. University of Alberta, we do a bunch of work for.
1: You do the work for them? You do it out in Saskatchewan and out in, in Alberta? Yep, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, Ontario, so Toba. Yeah. For your helicopters and stuff, you guys just, just use, you partner with somebody out there?
2: Yeah, that's right. We'll park wherever is the closest
1: to the work area, whether
2: that's some outfitter's cabin, whether it's at an international airport, or some farmer's here. You know, we'll, uh, yeah, we're pretty mobile. All our gear can fit in there. We bring an extension cord, plug the helicopter in overnight. But
1: yeah, we're we're totally mobile. Go wherever. Well, oh, you got uh, you got quite the crew now, eight guys. So, you guys, you constantly looking for guys, or what do you do for recruitment? You didn't start out with eight guys. Nope, no,
2: no. Um, a real key guy, uh, Matt Strebchak. There lives in uh, just outside of Nelson. He sort of he in, he had a bunch of experience working with another operator and so i i started with uh, him back uh, i think about 2014 and he introduced me to a couple other guys that he knew that had a little bit of experience and for a net gunner it's it's much the same as a helicopter pilot you, the government contracts they all want somebody that's experienced and a lot of them are they want guys that have 5 years experience or some of it's pretty the requirements are pretty steep so it's incredibly hard to get new guys started uh, where I've been fortunate enough to start a couple guys is through bigger contract um, that we have that would maybe last, um, say like 30 days in an area. And I'd start them off as a mugger for the first year. Uh, and they just, you know, ride around. They get to learn animal handling, get to know the different s- situations and then get them into net gunning. Neck gunning is not 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 terribly hard. It's very instinctive, um, but there's lots that can go wrong. That's for sure. There's a lot of hazards there. So if you're putting somebody in the neck gunning situation or in that position, you just got to make sure that they're that they're comfortable with everything that's going on. Otherwise, I think it's very overwhelming, uh, just to throw somebody in there. But as yeah. far as like recruiting new guys, yeah, it's uh very rare. I'm still working with the same neck gunners that I started with, yeah. Oh, yeah. six, eight years ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: that is that uh, that's a comfortable crew that size, you're looking to expand or uh that's
2: comfortable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If any yeah, it seems I don't wanna chase the work too much. Um <clears throat> yeah. when I started at Canadian Wildlife Capture I actually was gonna start it as a non profit group. Because it's not something that I, you know. I make money as a pilot doing it. I don't really want to make money through clean wildlife capture. That was never my goal. I always wanted to do something that you know I enjoyed doing, was passionate about, was beneficial for wildlife and conservation issues. But I never started as sort of a profitable business. But some other friends they advised me against that. They and I'm glad that they did because that's allowed me to be flexible. With any profit that we have made, so I've actually never taken any funds or money out of Canadian Wildlife Capture. We've put it all back into, um, back into, into conservation
1: mm-hmm. uh, and back that's into awesome.
2: wildlife. Yeah. yeah,
1: good for you. Yes, yeah. that's awesome.
2: Uh, yeah, I feel pretty fortunate. Uh, my wife's a rock star. She's supported me on that, and she's got a really good job and career. So. I've been fortunate that way, and it's been very rewarding. And it continues to grow. Uh, the last, yeah, five years have been uh, phenomenally just uh, gone really smooth. And we've had lots of work. We've turned away more work than than we've done too. There there seems to be lots of stuff. But to to grow, I'd grow if if I found the right people, and that's what I've been super committed to uh, lately. Uh, maybe it was the last four or five years, I did hire a couple people to try and get more jobs to chase this and that it didn't work out. It just mm-hmm. it was just an absolute nightmare. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm so all too familiar with that. If I had that. the right guys? yeah, right. It's one of those things I guess you learn over time, and uh, you know it was a big lesson for me for sure. It was a really big lesson, and it was going down a path that I just was just didn't want to. And so if I found the right guys, like like-minded people that were were in it for the passion because they're super interested in it not because they're worried of, you know or, or trying you know trying to be greedy trying to be make money off of it if you can i always say it's the best job in the world if that's what you're into if that's what you're into yeah. it's, it's really good not to say that it's an easy job there's a lot of challenges lots and lots of challenges but if that's what you're into then uh it can be the best job and, And the rewarding part of it is that we've been able to help purchase a bunch of um, conservation properties. Uh, And I think through Wild Sheep Society BC, I think we're getting close to almost $100,000 back invested through them, through their different conservation initiatives and projects. And it's really neat stuff. Really excited about that kind of stuff. And it seems to be, you know, it's growing in leaps and bounds here over the last couple of years too.
1: So when you guys, when you guys, Trap these or capture these animals, what's what's the point of, of the capture? What kind of surveys or, or tests are you guys doing on the animals?
2: Right, that's a great question, Kevin. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is for different research projects or initiatives. Um, it could be in support of population estimates for the the different biologists um, so that they can adjust hunting quotas, seasons, guide outfitter quotas, whatnot. Um, It could be species of interest, which we've been working on quite a bit over the last few years, and that would be uh, caribou. Caribou populations seem to be declining globally and in in BC as well. Um, So we've been doing lots of work with that. So they want to monitor populations and movements and effects of, uh, I guess, disturbances whether that's heli skiing, pipelines, roads, seismic lines, you know, what what effect does that have on caribou and wolves and moose and all the other factors there, which seem, you know, that's it's outside of our sort of realm, but uh, we're in support of that. That's for sure. And uh, we also capture animals to do disease testing or monitoring. Much like those California bighorn sheep, we've been doing um, that Seroptes project and seeing how that sort of spreads across the landscape and what kind of mortality you get from that. Um, we've been working on um, the Southern Interior Mule Deer project extensively over the last five years. So we're pretty much putting collars on to see how the mule deer die uh, and, and monitor health. and. We do ultrasound to measure body fat uh, in the diff- different age classes of animals and see how maybe climate change could affect body fat over different years and how burn and non-burn areas affect body fat uh, for the middle deer as they're going into winter, how that affects the fawns, um, birth ratios, um, but so the science is, is sort of outside of our outside of our work, but it's in support of that through the different biologists and different groups,
1: different universities. Yeah, there's, that's that's quite diverse. So, do you guys do all do you guys do everything yourself, or do you ever take you take uh, you know biologists out with you, or, or any of your clients? Do they come on these uh, these captures?
2: Yeah, uh, quite often the biologists will come, and we invite the biologists to come out one of them to be mugger there's a couple biologists that do the net gunning in their own areas themselves there's a couple in bc i like it if the biologists come out because it's their area and region their wildlife that they're managing and i i think a lot of the biologists love the field work and i think as government biologists that field work they get less and less of it and they probably got into that field that they're in because they love doing field work I think like a lot of government workers, they end up in the office a lot more dealing with bureaucracy and managing all yeah, kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So I'd like to see or hopefully a contribute or hopefully that field experience contributes to the passion in their work. Uh, I try and encourage them to come out, see what's going on out there too. Because um, if they're not there on site in the helicopter doing the work themselves as well, then you're... Taking down the notes, or you just reading the notes that we've given them, or you know, it, there's yeah. always that question of what's actually going
1: on out there. Or yeah, if they're the, right there. You get with the hands you. on or yeah. boots on the ground definitely definitely makes a difference yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. So what other services do you guys provide? Um, uh, we are doing we're working
2: or we're doing aerial stuff for sure. That's kind of where we started, but we've been requested to do some other stuff too. So right now we've got a crew in Revelstoke. They're doing ground trapping of white-tailed deer. Uh, that has to do with the caribou project as well in that area. And it's we've been working on it for several years now. We always trap and collar and do some sampling on, on white-tailed deer in the Revelstoke area. Because the, the white-tailed deer there, I think, are uh, maybe a relatively new species. Uh, there's some studies going on through the University of Alberta on measuring, you know, Are the white-tailed deer population in Revelstoke area supporting a cougar population that historically, or maybe yeah, historically wouldn't have been there, uh, a cougar population? There has been some cougar predation events in that area on caribou, so it's it's a bit of a. There's some people working on some studies there, Uh, so we got that that crew there doing ground trapping. Uh, We don't, we have we have aerially caught a few white tails in that area. But the whitetails there live in the old growth timber uh, just because it's such high snowfall area. And you you can't get them to run out into an opening where there's you know, there might be five or six or eight feet of snow. They just won't they won't ever leave the trees. You could chase them around with the helicopter until they died, but they'll never run out of the timber. They've never stepped foot out of out of that timber into an opening um so they'll like they just never there's no trails for them or anything to run out into the open there's just too much snow
1: does that so make we do your ground yeah does that make your guys' job more difficult if there's a lot of snow i mean besides not being able to get the deer out but i mean for you physically on the ground if you run into a lot of snow is that i, I could see uh, that being an issue for you guys
2: not so much no a yeah. lot of times we'll do like we'll do stuff um uh, up in Prince George, which is also a super high uh, snowfall, like up in the mountains, doing caribou and wolves. And the snow, it slows the animal down quite a bit when you're pursuing them to get a net on them, oh, which yeah. can help. There's oh, yeah. some other difficulties. Like Sometimes we've had snow so deep that a caribou would be to the top of his shoulder. It'd be just powder snow, and just the head of the caribou is sticking up. Yeah. Well, you, you can if you can picture yeah. trying to get a net on onto that animal. Well, the net just spreads out on top of the snow, so all you have is its head, yeah. and the net has a hard time getting down to its feet where it would entangle the legs and the and the hooves of the caribou, and, and sort of enable or uh, inhibit its 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 travel through the snow. So. Sometimes there can be too much snow, but that's pretty rare. That'd be that'd a pretty rare uh, occurrence. More often than not, deep snow is good because it slows the animal down. It cushions their fall as well. So sometimes we're out neck gunning on dry ground just because it's all you have. You're, never, you're, you're working in areas that never do get any snowfall. And there's always that risk of broken legs, dislocated hips, right. cuts and abrasions, stuff like that. So with the deep snow, you don't really have to worry about that.
1: Yeah, when do you guys do most of your uh, most of your captures is there a busy season yep december 1st till april the 1st oh, so really? right now
2: we should be we should be balls to the wall uh out there doing stuff but uh, a lot of our work this year is um committed to british columbia and the province is having a bit of trouble right now uh with the way the wildlife act reads and that has to do with captures and pursuing with helicopters and the lawyers I think are having a heyday with I don't know it's a little frustrating being on our side of things I think there's a lot of people working really hard to get things figured out but uh, other than the crew in Revelstoke and the cusp the uh, our helicopters are sitting on the ground here and all the net gunners are twiddling their thumbs (laughs) unfortunately but i'm I'm sure here any day that we'll uh we'll be out in the field this is definitely prime time right now so we were out doing a bunch of caribou captures up in dease lake um watson lake um, teslin uh, earlier in uh, late october and early november and we were doing mule deer captures throughout the month of december in kamloops grand forks and penticton but we're all finished that stuff for now and we're we're just waiting to move on to, to the next few projects. Oh, yeah. So, as soon as we get the green, green light.
1: Yeah, it never fails there. I don't know. It just seems every time you turn a corner, there's there's some bureaucracy going on with our province. I don't know. It's just such a mess, but it's a whole other topic. Isn't that the truth, Kevin? Yeah. It's a, Isn't you that know, whoever truth? I talk yeah. to, it just that the topic of the, our province can, you know, you could just sit and talk yeah. about it for hours, all the issues we got going on. I don't get it.
2: Yep. Yep. I agree. 100%.
1: yeah yeah for everybody so you got uh so once you get over that you'll have 2021 should be pretty busy for you guys i guess um but uh you know i looking at the clock here we've we've pretty much eaten up an hour is there anything you'd like to add
2: i was going to mention about that fraser river uh movie project Wild yeah society bc i'm a big big advocate of wild sheep society bc really great guys you know chris and kyle and Everybody, those and they've been so awesome at, you know, raising initiatives, raising funds, and going after stuff like that Fraser River Moby project, which is pretty exciting. Uh, last year was the first year that we, I shouldn't say, oh, it's we, yeah, I guess everybody's putting an effort in there in their own, right? But the entire, you know, members of Wild Sheep Society BC, so much effort, so much contribution from so many sides there. Uh, people trying to rid that. That herd, the Fraser River herd of of its movie, and, and uh, it, last year we ended up taking an an active role in it and euthanizing some active shedders, uh, uh, you know the sheep that are actively shedding the the bacteria, and the the result was was so positive. There wasn't we we worked on a small subpopulation on the west side of the river, 50 animals. We caught every single one of those animals that was there, every single one, which was a task in itself. You know, it's always easy to go catch a couple animals, but if you're trying to catch yeah. every single animal, an entire yeah. group, the challenges are pretty steep, every single one, tested them all on site. Uh, and the active shedders were removed from the population. There hadn't been any use sur- sur- or sorry, any lamb survival in that population for about five years. Well this year pretty much every single lamb that was born is still survived to this wow. day. So a uh, huge positive yeah. result from from the efforts of well sheep Society. BC. I can't say enough about those guys really good and uh no, all they're, what they're doing. And yeah, they're a great good. Good. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. quite the project. Yeah, yeah, I
1: forgot about that one. That's uh that's really good. Yeah, that's 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 no easy feat, though, what you guys are doing. And, man, that's quite no, the accomplishment.
2: I think the big, you know, so it's proven that it worked. It was, you know, proven in the United States. So that was the kind of the examples that they were building off of is that in uh, uh in Hell's Canyon and in Idaho, and there was a place in South Dakota, I think they did the same thing where they didn't, you know, you can't go catch every single sheep on the landscape, but you could pick away at it, you know, year after year, get rid of those active shedders, and eventually clean out that moldy. So the thing that I think is most important for you know moving forward is is putting the pressure on the Department of Agriculture to need some sort of permitting uh, for domestic sheep farms in those sheep areas. Uh, and either you know it, well it's pretty easy. You restrict domestic sheep in wild sheep habitat, or there's a permitting process to make sure that you've got clean sheep so they're movie free, or double fencing requirements and and if we can get Department of Agriculture on board for that, and I know everybody's been putting a lot of pressure on them, but I think it's it's a topic there now, at least, if we continue to put that pressure on them, that'll prevent it happening again. Because all it takes is one farmer to decide he wants half a dozen sheep, yeah. uh, you know, to eat for a year to feed his family or something like that, uh, to bring the movie back onto the landscape. So, you know, everybody's efforts, everybody's, uh, efforts towards it could be, be just diminished just like that so really important for keep that pressure on department of agriculture to get something in place and i I, i've written some letters and they've written back and said that um, it's a it's a complex problem and and uh I don't really buy buy into it. You
1: know, there's there's
2: those three simple solutions that I, that I put, you know, put out there.
1: You know, know for the guys, for the people who are involved, who have the, you know, hands in the field and boots on the ground, the the answers are are a lot simpler than, than they sure get made out to be. Once you get, you know, you get all the politics involved, man, it sure, sure creates a mess. I don't, I don't get it. I don't know why we just can't have, you know, why we can't just listen to the science of it and say, Hey, well, this is what needs to be done. So we're going to do it. Yeah. 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 Painful.
2: So uh, I think that's important, you know, for your listeners out there, you guys listening and probably hunters just like myself um, and yourself, Kevin, yeah. join a group, whatever group that is, whether it's hunters for BCSI or... Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Wild Sheep Society, B.C., Wild Sheep Foundation, G.O.A.B.C., or, you know,
1: yep.
2: uh, go to uh be a Anybody. member. Yeah, Get exactly. in there. Make that voice. Send a simple letter. It takes five minutes to send a letter. And, the, that you know, there's people that hear that. If you guys that are listening, for sure, like make your voice known. If you think that maybe white-tailed does shouldn't be... You know, harvested every year. That's a hot topic for sure. A lot of people I know, a lot of hunters.
1: Yeah, I, I had I a conversation. Let them, let with, uh, yeah, I had a conversation with Dave Ryder about that. About the uh, yeah. the white tail doe. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, uh, it, it's definitely it, a topic. They
2: listen. Uh, well, I shouldn't say they listen, but they they uh, they're public servants. They you know have they they listen to the pressures that are out there from whatever stakeholder. You yeah. might not get the response that you want, but it'll be heard. And no. If there's enough people that speak speak up that's
1: how things change yeah exactly and and that's the importance of the of the groups that you mentioned is you know if you don't think that your voice will be heard reach out to members you know to the to the committee members of your of the organization that you're a member of and they'll get those answers so they'll make your point for you yep
2: super important moving forward um as a, you know, hunters are a minority population in BC. If we don't Absolutely. take care of our interests, yeah. we're going to lose it. It's a, not a right, it's a privilege. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, so I think it's that's, that's got to be like really important. Said our set, you know, there's probably differences. And then I like a lot of times we, as hunters, we divide ourselves due to interests, but we've got to focus on the.
1: yeah unfortunately in the hunting community personal interest seems to take precedent with a lot of people over what's (laughs) actually important but uh i think you know yeah yeah. conversation can change all that hopefully that's the nice thing about these podcasts you get you get to reach out to guys like you and you know a lot of listeners that are listening today they might never heard of the canadian wildlife capture program but uh, now they will
2: thanks for that privilege to to talk there kevin
1: yeah. But uh okay, buddy. I'm gonna uh I'm gonna let you go here. Uh, it's been a great it's been great talking to you. Uh before I let you go, where can people find you? Google
2: us. Uh, we've got a webpage. page, dot com.
1: Check us out. We've got a few pictures on
2: there. Uh I'm always learning about posting videos because somebody can always spin it in some other way or you know, they're definitely they're not our projects. They are projects of the different groups. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we have got a website. Got a lot of pictures on there, lots of information.
1: What about Facebook? Are you guys Check on Facebook, on, Instagram?
2: Yeah, we got a face Facebook, Instagram. Yep, I uh, just posted a thing on Instagram there on Canadian Life Capture on Instagram. A little goat capture from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, I got tons of video. I should, you know, post more little clips there. And seeing as I got a little bit of spare time here over the next couple of days, maybe I'll post some stuff there. So check us out on Instagram. Yep. But, Canadian Wildlife Capture.
1: Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. You guys got a lot of neat stuff on Instagram there. I was checking out your pictures. So anyone listening, want to go check them out. Make sure you guys do that. Uh, but okay, man. I'm going to let you go. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Okay. Later. back. Bye.